Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm a fourth grade teacher, PhD student at Utah State University, and someone who just wants to know more about reading. This podcast is about bridging literacy research into practice. Every episode, you'll hear from a literacy researcher about their work, why it matters, and how to turn it into practice in your classroom. Welcome to episode 10 of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm really excited. We're to episode 10. This has been a great experience for me. I'm glad that you're here listening as well. Thanks for joining us. This is a place where we are working to bridge literacy research into practice to help us understand how to become better literacy teachers. I'm really excited about today's episode because we're going to zoom out, a way out. In this episode, I interviewed Drs. Emily Brown-Hoffman and Colleen Whittingham about what the research trends have been in early literacy research for the last decade. So together with their mentor, Bill Teal, Dr. Hoffman and Whittingham systematically reviewed research conducted in early literacy from the years 2006 to 2015, and they reviewed nearly 7,000, yeah, 7,000 studies um, in order to write this one study to demonstrate the trends of literacy research. And it's really interesting how they did that. They kind of went through the big corpus of all 7,000 and then looked at a subsample to go a little bit deeper with. And that's kind of beyond the scope of the show, but they did it in a very smart and systematic way. And from that, they were able to glean what's been going on in early literacy research for the past decade. So we zoom clear out and give a bird's eye view of the major areas of literacy research and then talk about specific trends in each of these areas. We do cover a lot of ground in this episode, so there's certainly a takeaway for everyone. Dr. Emily Brown Hoffman is an assistant professor at Ball State University, and Dr. Whittingham is an assistant press professor at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. And uh, enjoy the show. Stick around after and listen to my two cents about a decade of early literacy research. Doctors Emily Hoffman and Colleen Whittingham, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to have both of you on. You were both involved with a project where you took a look at a decade of early literacy research, and uh, you had two articles, one that appeared in The Reading Teacher and another that appeared in the Journal of Early Childhood Literacy. Uh, I'm curious, what what got you involved in investigating a whole decade's worth of early childhood literacy, of early childhood uh, research? I think the short answer to that question is that when you're a doc student, the projects of your um, mentor and advisor pretty naturally become your pet projects as well. So um, this was really the brainchild of Bill Teal. Um, at the time was a professor at University of Illinois at Chicago and the director of the Center of Literacy. Um, Bill has a long track record of research in early literacy and really at this point in his career had decided that he wanted to get a pulse of what had been happening most recently. Um, did a little bit of digging and there wasn't um, a comprehensive review out there and decided that if it didn't exist, that we would be the ones to take on the project to make it come to fruition. 
Excellent. So it was uh, both of you and then um, Bill Teal. And and wasn't he president of ILA for a while? And he's been, you know, journal editor. And he had, I was looking at his, at his Vita and it was quite the long, the long yeah, list must, of things. It must have taken you quite a while to read it. <laughs> I skimmed <laughs> it. I didn't. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So um, I think most people would originally know Bill from his work with emergent literacy. Um, he was instrumental in really bringing emergent literacy to the field um, and just the notion that children are always in the process of learning to read and write and whatnot. Um, so I think that's what he's probably most known for. And so there's definitely the um, project we did for the decade of early literacy research is definitely in his wheelhouse. Um, but then he was also the president of the International Literacy Association. Um, he had a couple early reading first grants while at UIC. Um, he was also getting very much into uh, literacy leadership um, when he passed. And I'm sure I'm, oh, and he was also really interested along with his partner, um, Junko Yokoda, in children's literature. So you'll also see a great deal of children's literature research um, and interest in um, his work as well. Did I miss anything, Colleen? I feel like that was kind of hit all the the main points. Yeah, um, Bill was really influential in the field in early literacy, and really that idea came to be after he um, he tells sort of the story of his trajectory. He had um, done a lot of extensive reading around Dolores's Dirk, Dolores Durkin's work on early readers. She called paper and pencil kids. And Bill really then moved her thinking forward in the idea that it's not one day you are a non-reader and the next day you become a reader, that it's a process that evolves and that um, really kids are engaged in reading behaviors, those skills that will become um, a part of their, what we would consider traditional reading behaviors um, really from birth or even before that, given that we know um, children hear sounds in utero and all of that. So um, I think that that is, is probably his biggest mark on the field. But as you mentioned, definitely some leadership roles, um, some editor um, positions with language arts. And, um, you know, he really had uh, touched um, many aspects of the field of literacy research in his time. Yeah, thank you both for sharing that. And unfortunately, he passed during the project. It sounds like it was near the end. Um, was was what I got. Yeah, the project was complete when he passed. Um, the and the Journal of Early Childhood Literacy piece was um, finished and um, published and whatnot. But the reading article uh, was in the beginning stages, um, and Colleen and I were able to do that um, afterwards. But. Uh, well, thank you for sharing that information about for those that weren't aware, you know, didn't know much about Bill Teal. I, I enjoyed learning more um, about him, but I think this would be a project that he'd be proud of. It's pretty massive undertaking. So perhaps uh, if we can transition here, talk to us about, give us some historical framing around what the early literacy research has said in perhaps pre-NRP 2000, post-NRP 2000. Can you give us a, a scope and timeline of of what early literacy research has looked like in the past 40 or so years? So if you go back to the 80s and 90s, um, what, what we saw 
was uh, Bill and emergent literacy um, became a new trend within uh, the early literacy field, where beforehand it was very much centered on like Morfitt and Washburn, their 1931 notion of um, reading readiness begins and children are ready to learn to read in first grade. They're ready to learn to read at ages six and a half. And as we talked beforehand a little bit about Bill and his work, um, the emergent literacy theories that developed uh, were much more instrumental and letting people know, no, children are always in the process of learning to read and write. And there's no set age when that just starts to happen. Um, and then we get to like the 90s, um, that's really focusing on the importance of like phonological awareness in early reading. We start learning more about the role of reading fluency in early literacy development. We learn more about these trajectories in early writing development. Um, and then there's also additional research in the home influences um, um, and how that influences classroom instruction. And that really brings us to NRP and NELP, um, which is really, you know, it's focused on the big five, um, phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. And also there's a big push now for scientifically valid research, um, random control trials and interventions. Uh, I, I have a fond memory. Uh, we were sitting with Bill in his office and we were talking about projects and whatnot, and he said, um, well, no one's going to fund you to write an ethnography. Um, and so that's kind of seeped into today's research mentality as well. Um, the focus of uh, just on RCTs and whatnot and where you get the funding follows that. Um, I think that kind of brought us up to what we were looking at uh, for our decade research, which started in, was it 2005? Yes. Mm -hmm. 2005 to 2015. And so as part of that, uh, what you all did was you went through and looked at research publications to see what research was being done in early childhood literacy. So talk to us a little bit about the process of that. You ended up searching through almost 6,500 different journal articles. <laughs> That's a lot. Yes. Um, well, I think you know, we initially wanted to turn to the journals that publish that publish peer-reviewed research, and so we used the database that the university provides um, in order to kind of sift through all of those citations. And so, when you're looking to see what's out there in this sort of broad scope, you need to set some parameters. And so, we had decided that we were going to be looking at early literacy broadly, which sometimes in the literature is called early literacy sometimes emergent literacy, and also sometimes beginning reading. And so we decided that we would use all three of those search terms and see what came up um, under that umbrella. And then we also obviously understood that within early literacy, research was being done on very specific topics. And so guided by um, the big five that um, Emily pointed out that the National Reading Panel determined. So we looked at phonological awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. And thankfully, um, writing was also included in the NELP report. So when there was specifically a report done to look at um, effective research in early literacy, writing was added. Um, we also, in our own work, wanted to add digital literacies because part of what characterized this decade was the real increase in technology in classrooms. And when we dig into the findings, we'll tell you a little bit more about what that looks like. But we had an, a hunch 
that digital literacies was going to be something that might be consequential. So um, we started to do some searches just really around those topics using those terms and bounding them by um, journal articles only. So we were not going to look at dissertations. We were not going to look at white papers or reports put out by centers. We wanted things that were peer reviewed, um, published in journals, and then bound by that um, particular decade that we were looking at. So when we did that, um, each of those separate searches collectively yielded, as we said, nearly 7,000 um, citations. And so we needed to think of a way that we could really practically, without um, landing ourselves in grad school for the next 18 years, decide on a process that was going to give us a good scope of what was covered in that research, but that wouldn't um, require reading every single piece that had been published. And so we do talk in the paper a little bit about um, limitations to our methods, which there are in every study. Um, we decided to use what's called a random number generator. So we didn't want to pick just the odd numbers, the even numbers. We were going to let a computer randomly select for us because there really is some sort of rhyme or reason to how the databases archive things. And we didn't want to inadvertently prioritize uh, certain pockets or buckets of, of studies, things that were published, um, let's say, in one journal primarily or by one author primarily. And so we used the random number generator. And so we pulled up all of this full list of citations um, and used this tool in order to identify 10% of those citations. Um, so then once we curated the 10% of the citations, we really dug into those pieces specifically using their abstracts primarily and sometimes digging into the pieces themselves when answers to questions about methods, population, um, age of participants, things like that couldn't be answered in the abstract, then we would um, pull up the, the full PDF. But that was really how we um, determined a way to broadly give a portrait of what was happening in this decade while also keeping the data collection um, and analysis somewhat manageable. So basically you cast a huge net and found every single article you could find within peer-reviewed journals and then from there randomly selected a smaller amount to dig a little bit deeper in. Is that is that a good gist of it? Yep. And then understanding too that some really great things are published but not always in um, reviewed journals. We also took a look at the handbooks. So anyone who maybe is thinking about graduate school, um, master's students, these handbooks can be a really great resource because the handbooks give a, an overview of things that um, are important research that have been happening on um, topics more generally. So we wanted to look at um, the handbooks that had recently been published and also we looked at the yearbooks from the Literacy Research Association conferences, because those are papers that are presented at the conference, but sometimes find their way into other publication outlets, but a lot of times are published primarily as um, papers associated with the conference itself. So in addition to journal articles, we also wanted to capture anything that was published in those handbooks or those yearbooks. So those were our second and third. So let's dig into the findings. Let's let's start off with phonological awareness. What's been going on in phonological awareness uh, research over the past decade? Um, yeah, so what we saw regarding phonological, phonological awareness um, was actually kind of one of those surprise uh, findings that was more interesting than we thought it might have been. Um, not surprisingly, 
what we saw awareness did have a preschool and kindergarten focus. And this was all focused on early um, early literacy and early childhood, childhood education. So um, all the studies were bound from preschool to grade three. Um, so it's ages um, And so the preschool and kindergarten focus didn't surprise us. Um, there was also an emphasis on struggling readers and interventions. Um, and something that we saw that was, um, we thought noteworthy, was uh, the focus on um, implementing phonological awareness in context meaningful to meaningful to children and meaningful to students, rather than just in isolated um, kind of interventions. Uh, and then there was also multilingual students. Um, so this is interesting because as a whole for our research findings, we didn't find that much focus on multilingual students compared to previous decades. But there was a more of a focus in phonological awareness um, on multilingual <laughs> early childhood education populations. Um, and then we also thought, and we did think this about kind of all of our categories, um, but specifically with phonological awareness, we thought that there would be a ripe setting for incorporation of digital technologies with phonological awareness learning and teaching. Um, but again, this uh, this really wasn't found. Um, and we'll go more into when we talk about digital literacies, I'm sure. But um, we think that might be because the iPad really didn't make a splash until 2010. And research is slow. Um, and so there's this lag between, you know, uh, being able to research. Um, well, first, there's a lag in iPads being in schools and then being able to research iPads in schools and then also uh, publication. Um, so we really do expect this, though, in the next decade um, review that anyone does, is that there is more research focused on phonological awareness and digital technology. Very interesting. That lag of, you know, from when it hits schools to when it, you know, when, it, when the technology is produced to when it can be available in schools to when researchers can, you know, use you know, knowledge to help design a, a well quality, you know, a good quality study, you know, to publication. That's mm -hmm. uh, that lag is interesting, especially as fast as, you know, with, with, with technology that advances. Um, yeah, right. So how quickly you forget how new this technology is? Because if you think like the iPad came out in 2010, that's a long time for us, right? Using tablets and whatnot. Um, but as far as research and implementation in schools, that's not a long time. And then you have to also add that there's generally more pushback in early childhood settings regarding the use of technology than in settings for older children, right? Because there's this um, there's this concept um, that you know screen time is bad for children, and so that kind of gets um, developed in technology is bad for children, and so there's this general um, like lag of technology being used in early childhood classrooms as well that we see. Very interesting. So what about phonics? What's been going on in phonics in the last decade of, of research? So tell us about what's going on in phonics. What has phonic research been saying in the last decade? Sure. So when we dug into the phonics research, which looks at the letter sound relationships and how students are coming to understand those relationships that then translate into how they're decoding words or reading the word that's on the page and also encoding words in terms of traditional spelling. We're thinking about um, 
two kind of main buckets that our research studies fell into. One would be program implementation studies or studies that um, looked at the effectiveness of interventions. So we think that this is because the value of phonics instruction is certainly not to be disputed. It's something that we are aware is one of the building blocks of traditional reading in that phonics um, knowledge helps students understand that letter sound relationship and therefore increases their decoding. So that is not new. Um, what we found then over the last 10 years was that a lot of people were trying to decide what was the most effective way to instruct students in their phonics knowledge. So within that bucket of research, we found that um, many of these intervention studies were being conducted using what we deemed to be special populations. So students who were English language learners, students in high poverty communities, students um, who have any markers of um, having struggled academically previously. Um, so really the emphasis in this decade was how do we teach phonics to students who may need that extra support? Um, and programs largely focused on instruction in phonics only or phonics with a phonological awareness component, but we rarely saw any evidence of phonics integrated into programs more broadly. So we thought that that was interesting. We're still kind of looking at phonics as an, an isolated skill and therefore studies that um, were designed to test phonics interventions also exclusively had phonics outcomes. So they weren't looking at things um, more broadly like written composition or comprehension as related to phonics. And then the second piece that um, really kind of bubbled up for us was that there were a number of descriptive studies that characterized the developmental patterns or factors that were correlated with early literacy learning. So these studies typically looked at children's background factors, looking at demographics and then comparing them with their phonics knowledge. So what were things that maybe were predictive of phonics learning in school? So the next thing you both looked at was fluency, and fluency is one is really interesting to me because of, uh, you know, NRP 2000 uh, was one of the major findings of it, and there's was kind of this influx of research after NRP 2000 in the area of fluency. So what were your findings of fluency in early childhood literacy with your literature review? Um, yeah, so fluency uh, is generally defined as you know, the ability to read with speed and accuracy and proper expression, um, basically not reading like choppy or sounding awkward. Um, some people say it's kind of uh, reading like you would speak. Um, but uh, so uh, was focused more on older students for so grades like K, uh, grades one, two, three, which again is not surprising because um, those are decoders who are reading. Um, but also there was more, uh, work on fluency in kindergarten than we expected, which we thought was interesting. Um, but uh, I think the biggest uh, takeaway for fluency in this review was the focus on prosody, um, which would be the reading uh, with you know proper expression and kind of the rhythm at which you read. Um, a lot of people like to use poetry to uh, think about prosody and teach and learn prosody. Um, and in general, there was like a lamenting that prosody is often ignored as a key component of reading fluency um, and that there's too much focus on um, speed and accuracy and not on prosody. And so there's a lot of people advocating for 
um, lower prosody instructions, overspeed and accuracy instruction. Um, and then the second kind of prong of what we found in fluency was um, the fluency interventions. Uh, and it was kind of this idea that we know fluency is important now, but we want to know um, exactly how much or how little intervention is necessary to teach fluency. Um, so kind of like what's that magic number uh, people want to know about how much fluency you should be focusing on in instruction. The prosody component I found was interesting. We had uh, Dr. Chase Young from Sam Houston State on. He was, I think, I've episode three or four. Um, but he talked about prosody with regards to fluency, and he was mentioning uh, fMRI studies that have been done that show that the prosody uh, is, is we, know, we know that fluency is a predictor of comprehension, but prosody is the strongest, it's more strong than accuracy and rate, um, you know, with predicting comprehension, because if you're, if you're understanding what you're reading, you know when to pause and how to pause and how to have emphasis in your voice, but yet many fluency screeners don't, you know, involve that, you know, something like a, a prosody, like a multi-dimensional uh, fluency scale or, or something like that, which is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, comprehension. Let's move to comprehension. What did you find with comprehension in the early elementary grades? Sure. So comprehension was actually the largest body of research outside of that umbrella term that we looked at. There were over a thousand studies identified from the 7,000 that addressed reading comprehension. And so we took a look at 109. That was our random 10 percent um, in comprehension. And again, as we mentioned earlier, this study was bounded um, to be studies that included students from birth through third grade, as third grade is the traditional kind of developmental end of early childhood. And so most of these clustered around grades one through three, um, which again, not unsurprisingly, but I think that there um, in recent years probably has been more of a revisiting of the importance of listening comprehension. Most of these studies then traditionally focused on reading comprehension meaning that students were demonstrating the understanding of text that they themselves had read, which would um, explain the older age emphasis. Um, a lot of these studies were correlational, as we know that we tend to hold comprehension as one of the, um, the kind of end game of reading, right? It certainly is important to be able to read with accuracy, but we know that that fluent reading, as you both just mentioned, then leads to comprehension and the purpose of reading a text is to understand the text which is demonstrated through that comprehension. So again, unsurprisingly, a number of studies that we looked at were trying to seek what prerequisites or what skills led to accurate comprehension. Um, a number of cognitive factors, socioeconomic factors, demographic factors were all um, included in those studies. Um, we do want to point out, though, that many of these studies that were looking at these predictive factors were really um, heavily focused on students in what you would say, you know, in air quotes, kind of typically developing populations. So there wasn't much of an understanding of diversity or um, the varying needs of various students. Um, most of the studies that looked at that looked at comprehension were really focused more so on kind of the the middle, if you will, of student population. So the second um, real 
collection of studies around um, comprehension were those of intervention studies. So studies that were intended to increase students' comprehension of texts that they were able to read themselves. And again, surprisingly, but worth noting, I think, all but one of the interventions that were tried um, had the outcomes that were of interest to the researchers. So I think this um, doesn't necessarily speak to the um, success of all comprehension interventions. I think instead it speaks to our bias in publication that traditionally <laughs> when people try something that doesn't work, um, it is not often published, which I think is probably um, to the detriment of the field. I think that teachers and researchers should know things that don't work, um, which are almost as important as the things that do, because otherwise we probably have a lot of people out there who are trying things similarly over and over again that are not working, but we're not knowing that they don't work because we're not putting them out there in the world. So um, again, unsurprisingly, but worth noting, I think that all but one of the intervention studies that were evaluated had the outcomes that were desired. That's interesting uh, to note that the file drawer phenomenon, I mean, I'm sure it's got other names as well, but you know, the tendency to only publish great findings is uh, very interesting. So that kind of encompasses your, your major findings as far as in the, the individual areas. Uh, there also were some other areas that you investigated as well. And you've been teasing us about digital literacy. So let's let's dive into digital literacies. You thought that 2005 to 2015, there'd be this rise of uh, research that was using different sorts of technology, but tell us what you found. Yeah, so I mean, I think we should start maybe with thinking about what is digital literacies um, really. And I think it's noteworthy that I think in the field, we, we haven't come to like the same consensus, for example, as we have for defining phonics. Um, so basically, uh, digital literacy is, is kind of the ability to use information and communication technologies to find, evaluate, create, um, communicate information. Uh, but also there's uh, digital fluency, which is important which is the ability to be able to use different devices to communicate your feeling and using the uh, device and modes and means um, best suited to your purpose um, when you're able to communicate. So there's a lot that goes into digital literacy, but for really this review, we were interested in how, like how did digital technologies change literacy teaching and learning? And so I think that was really our focus, what we wanted to look at. And I think the easiest answer is we don't know yet. Um, I think there's a consensus both in the academics we interviewed and both from our own experiences that uh, technology in classrooms should be additive and not replicative, um, and that it should be focused on production and creation. Um, but what we saw in the review was really there was not that much um, research on digital literacies or technologies. Um, so computers have been around in classrooms for a long time, right? I remember having like Oregon Trail on a computer in my classroom that I use. Um, but we forget how quickly, how much technology has advanced in the last you know, decade um, and that research related to those developments um, would have been conducted in the later years of the decade and given you know, that academic publication lag that we talked about earlier, 
Um, I think it's only appearing, appearing now rather than in the publications that are included in this review. Um, so whoever's going to do that next decade research um, <laughs> will probably get to reap the benefits of this digital literacy research. Will it be you two in 2025? Are you going to do part two of this? like to think that it will be so Emily keeps putting this responsibility on someone else in our conversation but <laughs> I'm around to do it. I might try it again oh my yeah. gosh I'm thinking okay there was a moment when Bill came down to our offices we our offices were in the basement and um he had printed out like all of the citations and abstracts that we were looking and he had glued them all together um, to like make this massive, massive scroll. And so he came down and he like <laughs> unrolled this scroll. And I'm just having that moment of thinking of doing that again. Um, and yes, I do think it would be very fun. So I'm not saying no at all. And I think it would be interesting and now we know how to do it. Um, but, oh man, it might, it might take us to that time to be ready to do it again. <laughs> Oh, I'll, I will just, I'll be waiting in, in, well, I guess it'll start in six years. So I'll be waiting in eight years or so and, and we'll see. No, right? Uh, it takes, we'll see how it goes. I like that two-year buffer to do it because yeah. it's about that long. Slowly, so yes, it'll take a while. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you also investigated early literacy as more of a broader term. Um, tell us a little bit about why you did that and, and what you did. Um, and I think maybe really this was wishful thinking because I think that Emily and Bill and I all kind of come to early literacy from a space of understanding how while each of these components in and of themselves, of course, are vitally important and need to be understood in their nuance and therefore worthy of investigation individually. There also is great um, worth and value in seeing collectively how each of these pieces fit together to really create the portrait of what early literacy looks like um, for children primarily and also um, in classrooms. So we were really hoping that we would see some comprehensive studies that looked at early literacy broadly, and there were a few. Um, about a quarter of the studies that we looked at, however, were intervention studies, so that fell under this umbrella term, still were intervention studies targeting a very specific skill. And I think that again speaks to the nature of what was being funded at the time, the idea of scientifically um, valid and rigorous research, things that could have an input and an output. So we had to isolate variables. And so we saw some evidence of that, even when looking broadly, um, about 20% of the studies that we looked at were interventions of a specific early literacy skill with a specific population. Um, beyond that, we did start to see some studies that were focused on teachers rather than children being the main focus, um, children and their literacy outcomes being the primary um, indicator of success. We started to see some studies that focused on teachers. So the next 20% under the umbrella category um, looked at teachers either in terms of professional development so the ways in which teachers were learning how to be better teachers of reading, um, including some professional development intervention studies, and also some studies about teachers' perceptions and their practices in the classroom. So really, um, these would be interview and observation studies with teachers 
to get a sense of what are they up to in the early literacy classroom and what is the influence of the teacher in early literacy learning. Um, and then even zooming out a little bit, if you want to think about the ecosystem of influence on literacy learning, there were also some studies that focused on families. And these studies fell into sort of two categories. One, family indicators as a predictor of early literacy. This is not new, right? We, um, for decades, have seen the idea that if we only know enough about the parents, we can then determine what that means for their children in terms of literacy learning. And, and I'm, I'm not advocating for that as the way um, that we determine student success, but unfortunately it seems to be a narrative that continues in the literature. So there were a number of studies that looked at parent factors as predictors of literacy success. And then also a handful of studies that looked at family literacy initiatives. So some intervention type studies, some program type studies, um, around putting books in kids' hands, um, doing some family literacy nights and things like that, looking at, at that. So when we looked under this umbrella term, there were certainly some studies that were um, similar to those when we looked more narrowly, but also studies that encompassed more so the people in the systems of support, in terms of teachers and parents and families and their role in early literacy development. Very interesting. So starting to see some different branches of, of uh, research coming in with looking at teachers and, and family initiatives and that sort of thing. Uh, so talk to us about diverse student populations. You also looked into, uh, looked into that research as well. Yeah, we were interested in seeing how that developed in the research. And we found that there was really a limited response to our increasingly diverse student populations in early childhood settings. Um, not that there wasn't any attention at all, but there was no evidence of increased research focusing on historically marginalized populations, um, and there's no evidence of um, increase of research specifically on English language learners. So um, we <laughs> so we were a bit surprised by that. Um, and sorry, I'm I laughed because Colleen was in and out of and I should not have left at that moment. So, uh, but yeah, so uh, no evidence of increased research focusing on historically marginalized populations. Um, and then we are really uh, expecting more of an increase on research on specifically English language learners, and we really didn't find any. So we do expect there to be uh, an increase in that, um, in research on focusing on English language learners in the next review. So where do you both think things are headed in the next decade? I guess we're almost halfway through that decade, but where where was the next, what does the outlook look like? I don't know, there might be two questions there. Where do we think that the research is headed and where, we, where would we like to see it headed, right? Um, yeah. I, yeah. Sort of the broad overview here is that we do think that because the student population is increasingly diverse, whereas the teaching population is rather stagnant. Right? Our teaching force does not reflect the diversity of our youngest learners. And so we really need to be understanding what implications that has for learning. Um, teachers uh, understanding how teachers are prepared to meet the needs of students in their classroom who may come to them with very different family backgrounds, lived experiences than the teachers themselves um, bring to that space. And so I think that 
we would advocate for an increased rigor in the research that is conducted around how teachers are prepared to meet the needs of the students who are in their classrooms. Um, we talk about school readiness in early childhood specifically, but also a little bit in um, early literacy as well. And that idea of the child having the skills that they need in order to be prepared to enter the classroom. But I would argue that we need to be doing additional research in terms of how the school is prepared to meet the needs of the child. So school readiness in kind of reversing that terminology, right? How are our schools getting ready for our learners? Um, and, and we'd really like to see some research happening there, um, given the, the diverse um, demographics of our student population. So that would be one thing that we would hope to see for sure. Um, I think uh, more of a focus on oral language in general and really push back against the um, really surface level and detrimental notion that um, you can that the number of words um, and counting the number of words children can know and say and hear um, is the only important thing in early childhood, um, but that there's increased attention to the rich complexities of language interactions between children and adults across and within cultural lines and really the additive value of language diversity. I'd like to see more of that. Too, the idea, you know, we mentioned a few times these intervention studies that very narrowly target here's a phonological awareness intervention. Do students' phonological awareness skills increase after having been exposed to that intervention? And in many cases, yes, because that intervention did exactly what it set out to do, which was develop and increase a very specific and discrete skill. But what we're seeing then is that teachers are also starting to see those skills as very separate and discrete, and they're not. Um, uh, we're not in the research and in the literature providing teachers with the support that they need to continue to see how all of those pieces are integrated well. And so I would like to see an increase in research that takes on that complexity, right? It's, it's messy and it's hard to study and it requires probably more of a qualitative approach. And as we mentioned earlier, um, quantitative work tends to be that which is a little bit more readily funded. Um, and so diversity in methodologies is also going to increase the diversity in the findings that we're able to contribute to the field. And um, some of that will be messy, but I think necessary in really understanding what's happening in classrooms that's best for kids. Yeah, and if we're just going down a wish list now, I think I, think I, would, uh, I would really appreciate um, not only an increase in research, but an increase in uptake in developmentally appropriate practice in early childhood, um, early childhood literacy specifically, um, and just more of an emphasis and um, incorporation. And this is also a literacy leadership uh, thing that we need to focus on is that a play-based learning is the best way for children to learn. And so if we could really focus on that in early childhood context, I think um, we would reap a lot of benefits. I would also just add that um, we, of course, we have our own bents and our own slants given the research that we do and the reading that we've done and kind of where we've come from in the field. But the reading teacher piece, which I'll plug a little bit here, um, does a nice job of asking some really reputable scholars in the field where they think that um, the next decade can and should be headed as well. 
Yeah, I thought that was really uh, interesting. I enjoyed reading, you know, you had an interview. Uh, Tim Shanahan had a quote and Paula Schwann and Flugel. Um, and the, some of the other names escaped me, but um, yeah, yeah, I thought that was an excellent. I, I really enjoyed the the reading teacher piece. Yeah, that was really fun to do. That was to fun to get their historical perspective and kind of have them look into the crystal ball of what they think will happen from a very informed opinion. Yeah, a very informed opinion. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's connect this to practice for a few minutes. We've covered a lot of ground. After reviewing the research, what seems to be the most important factors for early education teachers to attend to with their young students? Um, I think that, again, um, that idea of integration and real authentic learning experiences, the research can sometimes do um, the work of isolating skills for us, but children learn um, when those skills are integrated and authentic. And so sometimes um, as a limitation of research, we put that onus back on the part of the teacher to do some of the synthesizing across. So I would advise um, early childhood teachers to be looking at the research for the specific areas that they may need some support, but then to also think about how that area fits within the context of what they're doing um, to meet the needs of the whole child. What I've been interested lately in formative experiments or design experiments. I, I just am wrapping up one that I've been doing in my classroom, but using those where it starts with a pedagogical goal and helping sort of bridge that research, you know, into, okay, what does it look like in a living, breathing classroom with absent kids and assemblies and, you know, things of that nature. So that's been quite the adventure uh, for me. Absolutely. And I would say that anytime that teachers have a problem of practice that is important to them, that is some of the most fruitful research that can be done. You know, we, of course, looked at things that met parameters that were worthy or kind of met the standards of publication more broadly. But really, when teachers take on a problem of practice in their own classroom and are able to try some things out, gather some information, some evidence, um, and can make some informed decisions based on that evidence, sometimes that can be the research that's most impactful to their practice because it is specifically um, targeted to the needs of their student population. And so, um, you know, the What Works Clearinghouse obviously is a, a great place to start when looking for things that have been effective, but I think teachers then need to take the critical step also of thinking not only about what works in general, but what works for me, what works for my students, what works for their needs in this place and this space and this time, um, and really to contextualize that too. So I think that as researchers, if we're kind of looking for that gold standard, we sometimes miss the mark in terms of um, meeting the needs of the individual teachers and students who are facing real unique problems of practice in their own spaces. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. Last question. What makes a good teacher? Um, I, I mean, I think if a, a short description uh, is something that, I mean, these are things that I continually try to improve on myself is to be a community engaged teacher um, where I'm in, involved in the community of my students um, and then uh, being very student focused being equity focused, um, being knowledgeable about content and developmentally appropriate practices, 
um, while also wanting to keep learning with and from students. So that idea of like a teacher and learner, I think is important of you're never done, right? You're always wanting and willing and pushing to, to learn more. So I think to me, what makes a, a strong educator is a person who not only understands their own craft, knows the content in, of which they are teaching, right? We tend to position teachers as the more knowledgeable other, um, but a, a true educator and the ones who I have worked with most closely in my own practice and in my own profession are those who understand their learner as well. Um, it's not enough to simply know the content that you are teaching, but it's um, most important to also understand where the learner is and what steps need to be taken to help the learner get to the next goal or the next um, accomplishment. So I think it's about both understanding and knowing content, but knowing the people and, and what their needs are specifically in your space. Excellent. Thank you both so much for coming on the show, Drs. Colleen Whittingham and Emily Hoffman. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. A great big thank you to Drs. Hoffman and Whittingham. I'm so appreciative of them joining me on the show and discussing early literacy research. So I have two big I have two big takeaways from this interview that I would like to share. The first one has to do with the relationship of research to practice. One thing I really appreciated about the conversation was that it helped illuminate that literacy research uh, is an evolving science. We know there's a lot of things to help our young readers be successful, but there are still many questions left to be answered. So occasionally I'll hear someone say, Research proves X, or it's a scientifically proven fact that dot, 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 dot. Something of that nature. So the person saying this, they're, they're very well-intentioned. I don't mean to knock that, but they state it like it's a done deal and something already decided that the book is closed and that this one thing in this specific circumstance is the one and only way to go. And that's a really inaccurate way of looking at it. Uh, research can suggest or support, but usually situations are unique enough and the research is nuanced enough that it's hard to say research proves in any given circumstance. Now there are general trends and we can predict a lot of things, but um, in many instances, I'm just not sure there's quite enough literacy research to say research proves this. A better way of thinking about it is that literacy research is more like a thousand piece puzzle. There's many pieces that are already down, but researchers are trying to find more pieces of the puzzle to make the picture clear. So in a sense, if you'll let me mix metaphors for a second, practitioners are trying to build the literacy plane while researchers are trying to find which parts are going to fly the plane best. So I love literacy research, and I'm certainly not saying that literacy research is useless. It's the best tool we have in learning what works for students, but it is far from complete. And each and every individual study takes place in a specific situation with a specific population with, for a specific duration of time. Uh, and those are all factors that contribute to whether that intervention was successful or not. And those 
factors usually vary widely across different classrooms in the nation. So um, I would much rather be in a place where we're saying that you know, trends in research are suggesting this or there is evidence supporting that dot, 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 dot. But I get real squeamish when whoever is talking is saying that research proves that dot, 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 dot. My second thought has to do with, uh, I couldn't really come up with a term with it, so I just called it the gestalt of reading. And this was an interesting trend mentioned by Drs. Hoffman and Whittingham. So typically in literacy research, you have to, in order to study a specific variable, you have to isolate it to a degree. So that way you can measure it and you can measure other variables that are associated with that individual variable. We all know that literacy classrooms are very complex and very dynamic, and there's really more factors than you could ever really measure and control for in a given study. And if you did, you just there just starts to be diminishing. The more you try to measure and control for, you just get diminishing returns on you know, on whether that study is really telling you anything or not. And so that's sort of the name of the game with research is that you need to isolate some studies and either manipulate them or do something else to order and control it for in order to figure out what you know about that topic. Um, so what happens though sometimes is that these variables get isolated and it says, oh, that doing such and such intervention works and then it gets replicated in the classroom the exact way it was done in the study. And many times that's, that's probably fine, but you and I both know that there's a gestalt to reading where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so our goal as literacy teachers is not to teach literacy as a set of isolated skills, never the twain shall meet, but is our goal to teach it as an integrated set that all somehow work together to create a productive, efficient uh, reader. An example of isolating variables, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later in the show on a different week, but that I've seen is in, in my personal research is with dyad reading, where with dyad reading it was typically in the past done whole class, but when you look at some of the influences or some of the predictors of it, that uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be done whole class as a separate intervention 15 minutes a day. It just was done separately like that in order to research it. And so there's other ways to integrate it into what you're already doing to make it more effective. So I hope I was clear enough in explaining that. But the main thing here is, is not to isolate our literacy practices. We have to know how they fit together with other pieces and integrate it so that our literacy instruction can have a gestalt where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Thank you for listening to episode 10 of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. As always, if you like what you hear, share it with a literacy teacher that you know. Leave us a review on Stitcher or iTunes. Uh, those go a lot, long way to help support the show. And I appreciate you listening and taking your time with me. And we will see you again on episode 11. So until then, let's all go and teach literacy just a little bit better. Thanks for listening to our conversation today. Remember to check out the show notes for more details. If you have feedback or a show idea, feel free to email me at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast. And until next time, let's go and teach literacy 
just a little bit better. 